Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Solo Collective. I'm your host, Rebecca Seal. We're going to be having a hopefully easy conversation about difficult conversations. My producer wanted me to tell a story about some time that I'd had a difficult conversation at work. And I uh, haven't because I suck at hard conversations and I have avoided them for the entire of my career, frankly. I'm sure that I'm not the only one who finds this very complicated. There are so many different genres of difficult conversations, aren't there? So it can be really hard to ask for more money. It can be really hard to say no to work when you work by yourself. It can be really hard to say you're overwhelmed, to ask for help, to ask for a promotion, or to say that you've been treated unfairly in a particular context. There are so many kind of dead-end feelings in conversations like these. We are talking to Anna Sale, who is the host of an amazing podcast in the US called Death, Sex and Money, which are obviously some of the hardest things to talk about. And she is also the author of Let's Talk About Hard Things, which is absolutely brilliant. I've just finished reading it and it's it's amazing. And I wanted to get her to talk to us here because let's not forget that we're in a whole new baffling world of communication now, because... In fact, it's quite rare to get somebody face-to-face in a room, if you think about it. And so much of the conversations that we have, particularly to do with work, are conducted over a screen or via Slack or whatever other platform you might be using, or email or WhatsApp or text message. And that means that there's a loss of nuance and they can seem very direct when they're not intended to be. And frankly, nobody wants to ask for a raise or a better fee over Slack. It's a very tricky format in which to have a difficult conversation. So I'm really intrigued to talk to Anna about how we manage this sort of weird new world that we find ourselves in. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Sure. I loved your book. I inhaled it. It was, <laughs> it's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I loved it for loads of reasons, but one of the reasons was because I am terrible at having hard conversations particularly to do with work. I mean, I can do it in all areas of my life, avoiding hard conversations, (laughs) but I am really good at it to do with work, which I think paradoxically has given me a bit of a reputation in my field for being quite easygoing. Hmm. I think that makes things complicated because I think once you've got that reputation, you don't want to sully it by suddenly being difficult or or appearing to be difficult. So it was very illuminating to start thinking about ways in which I might be able to make some changes. Yeah. So it came at a particularly neat moment for me. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to talk about the way that you just conflated being honest with being difficult. That's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not a good conflation, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I get it. I think, I mean, to me, I think of that as sort of gendered. Do you? 
Uh, oh yeah, and for sure. And also, I I'm curious because I'm an American. Like, what you think I missed about the context of you know where you live and and how people if they're avoidant in the same way where you live or not. I mean, I feel like Americans are known for being loud and rude <laughs> to get their needs met. Not, not all of them, surely. <laughs> That's so interesting that you say that because that was going to be one of my first questions, actually, kind of what your experience of different cultures, you know, our two different cultures for one, but also other cultures, whether there are kind of human-wide specific issues on this stuff or whether it's kind of more culturally specific. To answer your question, though, I think, and this is a bit of a cliche, but I cliches are cliches because they're true. I think British people, or English people maybe more specifically, to talk of the group, the kind of micro group that I'm part of, or many of us are quite repressed about... <laughs> talking about our needs. (laughs) And I think that we find it quite difficult. I mean, just the fact that there's a sort of cultural trope of us saying, sorry, 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 all the time. You know, someone opens a door and hits you in the face and you say, sorry. It's not a lie. It's true. I probably apologize about 500 times a day. And that makes it that kind of mindset makes it very, very difficult to be honest about things. And also very, if you're constantly apologizing for just being present on the street, mm-hmm. which we all do a lot, then that context makes it really hard to say, I need a pay rise yeah. or I'm unhappy in my job or I need to complain about somebody mm-hmm. in a in a real and challenging way. So yeah, I think it's probably something we maybe struggle with more here than in the US, but it's hard for me to say that specifically because I haven't spent enough time working in the US to to be able to say that. But I don't know. I also feel like maybe, and this can't be true of everybody again in the US, but maybe you've got a culture that is slightly more open to kind of therapy and personal development and self-help and things like that. So I feel as though there's maybe more kind of growth stuff that you do in general than we do here, perhaps. Do you think that's fair? I think certain pockets. It depends on, again, what microculture you're talking about, but certainly the corners of American pop culture that I occupy. I think that's the case. Yeah. We love therapy at Death, Sex, and Money. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess one of the things I wanted, I was curious about in particular to talk to you about was kind of Do we need to, when we think about difficult conversations, do we need to kind of separate the emotion from the conversation or do we need to kind of get the emotion into the conversation but manage it better or Mm -hmm. how do we do that? Because I think, you know, this this conversation is specifically aimed at people who work by themselves or for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though for us as a group in particular, and I've talked about this on the podcast quite a lot, there's a there's a lot about how our, our work identity and our identity identity becomes very tightly wrapped yeah. around each other. Mm-hmm. And I think, therefore, when you go into a complicated conversation with somebody that feels like it's got a lot of, of weight, a lot of emotions come too because there's a lot of stuff about self-worth, there's a lot of stuff about self-doubt or imposter syndrome, um, whether you've got the right to have this conversation. And I, I, I don't know how... Do you have any advice on how we kind of disentangle that stuff or, yeah. or get some clarity on it? I mean, the way the way I think about any hard conversation is that there's like, I think of it as like two tracks. There's like the content of what needs to either be disclosed or asked about. And that's that's kind of the like gut feeling you have of like, Ugh, 
this has to be talked about. And then equally important is like, oh, Lord, what does that bring up as far as my feelings about starting the conversation? What is that likely to bring up for the person I'm talking to? And once we start that conversation, how do we like acknowledge whatever feelings are coming up while we're having the conversation. And so I think you said, is there a way to not make the feeling so present? And, and I don't think so. I think it's so much more about kind of being aware of both of those things happening at once. But if you let them kind of become one track, then the conversation is not going to be as successful as if, you know, so I think about saying things like, I think if I start a hard conversation and I know I'm likely to get emotional or I think somebody else might get emotional, I think about starting it with like, can I talk to you about something important? And that way you're sort of signifying, let's go into a different mode where we're listening more closely to one another. I want to talk to you about X because X. And so having in your mind, what is this? How are you opening the sort of thesis of the conversation? Like what is what's prompting this? And then being really aware it's okay and it's natural and normal for you to have feelings and for the person you're talking to to have emotional reactions you know maybe that shows up as defensiveness maybe that shows up as saying like sorry 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 you know like that kind of thing but what i try to do is like keep just sort of watch that and and pay attention to the pacing of the conversation because you you can see like when you when i get emotional in a conversation my pace quickens i get you know, I want to react. Um, I want to, you know, I'm often defensive. If something feels like I've disappointed someone, I know that I'm going to get defensive first before I am able to hear that. And so I've learned to say things like, I'm noticing I'm getting defensive. So I think that this means, and so trying to narrate the feelings that you're noticing instead of just acting them out. And that can be a cool way to express like that this is important to you. Like I'm noticing I'm getting defensive. I think that I'm, oh my gosh, I really don't want to disappoint you. Or I really don't want you to think that I'm not on board with this project. But I I have noticed that I need this extra support to get this done. You know, that, that kind of thing. And so I, I don't have a prescription to keep those emotions totally controlled and tamped down. But mm. but what I think is the real way to 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 enter a hard conversation is to, to sort of know this is going to be uncomfortable in moments for me, potentially for the person I'm talking to, but I'm going to do my best to be intentional about how I open the conversation and really trying to listen to how they're reacting to whatever I'm saying. Because if you're in the position of having a conversation started on you, like you're less prepared. So just with that, kind of rem- remembering that as a way to sort of be more empathetic, I think, can can set you up to sort of listen and hear each other, which is the goal of a hard conversation. There's a difficulty, I think, and maybe this is a British thing again, I don't know, but there's there's a difficulty in all of that too, isn't there, about just not being very adept at sitting with hard feelings. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm that person. Yeah. And I, But I also have experienced difficult conversations with people who – in the same way, just want to kind of fix it, just want to fix it, get it done, get it over with, whatever, like, yeah, like, let's just stop, like, whether that means giving a solution too soon, or refusing to create a solution, because they just want to get out, and they're kind of incapacitated by the, the emotional load of the experience of the conversation, or whether it's my mode, which is just like, I just don't want to feel this anymore. I just, you know, I want to parachute out. 
that's like a, that's an added complication to the whole thing, isn't it? Because you don't you don't exactly know what the emotional experience of the other person is going to be, particularly if you're talking about a work yeah. conversation. Because yeah. you don't know that person in the way that you might know a spouse or a partner or a friend. I don't think that's a British thing in particular. I think that is a very it shows up in my work life all the time. And I and I think in part because I work with a lot of like highly competent type A people. And mm. in, in media in particular, where we are fixers, you know, we are going to produce the something <laughs> like an edit is wrong. We will fix it. You know, that is the whole mode in which we work and we don't want to disappoint each other. But also it will be done too. we do things and then they're done. Yeah. Like yeah. they are fi- they're finished. You air it, you you print it, you whatever it. But it's it's done and it's finished. And, and it's fixed. That that's a mode of operation which doesn't sort of translate into interpersonal relationships exactly. at all. That's what I was going to say. It's like, because podcast episodes or, you know, work projects are not relationships. Like relationships are what we're talking about here. And so I absolutely know very intimately exactly what you're describing. And and if for anyone who's listening who has that feeling of like, oh, someone's bringing something to me that feels uncomfortable or that I want to fix, like, I know that impulse of like, oh, I just will stop doing that and that will never happen again. And and that way we will never have to have to have this awkward conversation again. Yeah. I know that's the impulse. That's not always the most long-term, like, helpful way to respond because w- when I think of really healthful, like, expansive, trusting work relationships, it's where you've been through those moments of, you know, discomfort or turmoil or like, and you've figured out how to be with each other in it and go through it together, you know, just like a romantic relationship. Like I think about my marriage, like it's not comfortable to have conflict with my husband. I would prefer not to, but through us getting through tough stuff and like learning how to hear each other and recommitting to this project that we are invested in together of building and taking care of our family, that that reinforces what we're doing. Uh, and I feel like I know him more when I come upon places where I like disappointed him without realizing it or had a different take on something than he did. So I think that that's sort of what I was the whole kind of idea behind the book was like, the reason to have hard conversations generally is because it's to to know the person you're talking to and to feel more known. And that's really important, you know, like especially if you're talking about stuff that causes isolation or suffering because you feel like you're the only one who's dealing with this. And more specifically in a work context, I think it's kind of interesting because I feel like the the sex chapter can speak a lot to the work dynamic. I want to make sure people understand my point. I'm not saying we should all have sex with each other at work. I'm saying... <laughs> that was not what I did. Um, so uh, <laughs> but, but what I talk about a lot in the sex chapter is like the reason conversations about sex and intimacy are high stakes is because you're trying to figure out if you want and need the same things. And it's a mm-hmm. transaction, you know, to say it really coldly. And that is what work is. You are saying... I am delivering this work product for you. Is it what you expected? Am I getting adequately compensated for it? Can you afford to pay me what I feel like I need? You're constantly negotiating around these transactions at the same time that you're trying to have a pleasant time working together. But like at root, the reason you're in the room together is because you have a work transaction that is taking place. How do we get better at asking for help then? (laughs) 
<laughs> like in a difficult, you know, if we're thinking about difficult conversations that mean we have to say, I'm not coping or I need more support or, you know, this isn't, this isn't working for me or somebody is belittling me or, you know, how do we, cause they, those feel harder mm-hmm. to me than question than conversations about, could I earn a bit more money, please? Yeah. Sort of I mean, what you're describing, I think about a lot and I feel like in work, hard conversations in particular, it's really important to have the conversation variations on that conversation first with people who you don't share a workplace with to help you see more clearly. And it's not always, you know, certainly when if you have a reaction come up and all of a sudden there's a conversation in an editorial meeting, it's not something that you planned. But but I think ideally, like, for example, for me, I, I find that I am helped by talking to people who work for other media companies, for example, to be reminded of, of like, oh, whatever you know, frustrations I'm running into in my company, like there's just a different version of that in every media company. Or to talk to somebody who's a freelancer and and to understand like, oh, every way that we choose to work comes with benefits and drawbacks. Like these are all trade-offs, you know? And what that kind of does is it sort of, it softens my sort of emotions, my reactions. And then when I do have the conversation with, say, a supervisor, if I'm feeling mistreated, you know, I can be really clear, like, I'm going to say this in the language that a company understands, not this mommy, you know, version of of what I need her to do, you know. And what a company understands is, in the U.S., especially, you know, increasingly, like, if you say... I feel like this person's behavior is getting in the way of me doing my best work. And sometimes it feels bullying. It feels like I'm aware of the company's policies about, et cetera. Like, what should we do? You know, like that's the way, which is much less of a sort of like, I'm feeling this. Can you help me fix these feelings right. I'm having? Which I think is the way if if you talk first to your supervisor, you know, at the end of a hard day, like that might be how it unfolds. And and I think what you're saying is, you know, when you realize this, the space between who I am and where I work, like that allows you to, you know, see these relationships as like work relationships are not the same as our close interpersonal relationships. Like our work, we may love our work, but our work mm-hmm. will usually not love us back. It's just work, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that doesn't mean it doesn't come with so many feelings, you know, but that's why I find it's helpful to kind of have a sort of, you know, circle of having the conversation where I don't have to manage the work relationship while I'm managing whatever problem there is, you know. Is it like a practice version of the conversation? Are you kind of trying out the conversation on other people? I think, think? sometimes, I think sometimes if it gets to point where you're very clear what the problem is and how you want to signal that you are experiencing it, noticing it, and want them to address it. But often, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it takes a few rounds of me having conversations with other people just to understand, like, why am I feeling all these feelings about this? Like, what's going on? You know, um, is it because I'm like, just worn out because of the pandemic? Is it because yeah. I am realizing I need another kind of like work challenge? Like, is it that all of a sudden, the team that was a good fit, we need to sort of grow and and restructure that just takes kind of like conversations to sort of sort through because it those what it starts with is this feeling of like 
oh, something's off, you know? <laughs> and then yeah. and then it takes just like versions of like, is this me? Is this work? Like, how should I like, is this a problem for a boss to even be asked to address? Or is this my issue? You know? A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Given all of that. And our current context of mainly working from home, if you're in a kind of um, white collar job, how do we manage difficult conversations in the various weird new formats that we have to operate within? Like, Do you have any advice or thoughts on whether it's a good idea to try and do something on a video chat that's a complicated conversation or whether a straight up phone call would be better, you know? Should we avoid messaging apps for this kind of thing? Or is it quite good to be able to write it down like an old fashioned letter? You know, are there are there ways that we can kind of use the new tech to our advantage or is it actually making things more complicated? Everything you mentioned is a tool and sometimes it's a tool that that is right for the job and sometimes not. I think that writing things out even if you don't send a memo, but just writing things out to organize your thoughts, uh, I I often do that. If it's a something where it's like a very clear, I need to document that this is something I've been experiencing, then I certainly like write it down. And but often, if it's like a hard conversation that's less like this is an HR issue that you know potentially yeah. has complicated legal ramifications. If it's something just like uh, something's you know. Let's talk about this issue that's happening. I think video chat can be really nice during like work brainstorms, like where it's more than one, more than two people. So you can see how people are engaged and responding. That's when I like video chats. But for like a hard conversation, I like a pre-scheduled phone call. So it's sort of like clear, like we're having this phone call because we need to talk about X. So you both are sort of prepared for like giving it attention. And then I sort of liken it to, you know, the kinds of conversations that can happen when you're on a road trip with somebody where you don't have to make eye contact. It can Mm. be easier to talk. I like to walk and talk. Like, I find that that helps me just sort of like get out of a kind of frenetic mode of being reactive and to-do listy, you know, like if I'm sitting in front of my computer during a phone call, like I will, you know, oh, let me Google that. Let me make this a bullet point in my to-do list. Like, but, but if it's something where you're really trying, you want, you know, you're having a conversation where you're exchanging takes on things and you really want to make sure you're hearing each other. I think phone calls where neither of you are sitting at a computer, I think that's my favorite format for that. I totally agree. I think we've kind of defaulted to video a bit too much yeah. in the last 16 months. I think we need to kind of pull away from that and really think about whether whether it works for the particular conversation that we're going to have. Yeah. And I think like you say if there, if there's only two of you you can you can use the phone so much 
more appropriately. I know. <laughs> you know, well, why for? I mean, we're on video now, as I say that, so I appreciate the irony, but still. Yeah. I also I, I loved the points, and I this isn't like a spoiler, but I love the points in the conclusion where you were talking about how the goal of these difficult conversations is not necessarily to fix, mm-hmm. but to try. Yeah. I thought that was like that kind of lifted something off my shoulders reading oh. that. That that idea that oh it doesn't have to be perfect and if it doesn't work that's okay yeah but I gave it I gave it a shot yeah. and also the stuff you were saying about the goal of negotiation is not it's not about winning as such like I'm I wouldn't say that that was how I think exactly but I think a lot a lot of people do think it's a kind of it's binary either I get everything that I want or I get nothing and it's more maybe that's because we've just been through Brexit yeah and yeah. <laughs> we've all been like trained to think of deal making in a very particular way but yeah I felt I felt very yeah I felt very moved in a way by that because it's it's something that doesn't I don't think it's something that gets said very much I'm so glad because I that was also really meaningful to me like when I realized like oh hard conversations are not about like fixing some really hard thing to fix like if that's the goal of a hard conversation you're often going to feel unsuccessful you know like especially if it's around something like loss or you know some in a work context the company doesn't have enough money to employ all these people so something has to change like you can't talk your way out of that you know for example but I found the the negotiation point that you mentioned I first heard that from a business professor, a Stanford business professor named Margaret Neal. And she was giving a talk and she was, she sort of started with this idea, like, you know, everybody talks about like negotiation as like, it's a successful negotiation if you like get to a deal. And she's like, no, that is not, (laughs) that is not why you negotiate. You're negotiating because you're seeing, can my needs match up with this person's needs? You know, and if you discover through being, more and more clear. No, actually, I need this. You're not willing to give that. Okay. We won't have a deal. Like, oh, that's like, that's so empowering, you know? And I, I wrote about that, that like frame. It's so sort of weird to think about it, like work informing something as intimate as my romantic life. But like, that was a really helpful thing for me to be able to tell myself when I was ending my first marriage that like, I wasn't only a failure, <laughs> you know, like that was the feeling I had and the shame of like, why can't I fix this marriage? Like we said we were going to be married forever and I can't fix this. And it was through like really allowing in that possibility of like, oh, like if I'm really actually able to hear what he's saying that he wants his life to look like. Like and say, like, I'm not going to try to talk you out of that or make it match up with what I think our life ought to be. But if I can hear what you're saying and then say, wow, I that's not what I want my life to look like. And then that's what led us to the decision to end our marriage. Like it was so like talk about a, a lift and a relief to, 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 to let that be, yeah, you know, a very empowered decision. Like actually we are being loving to each other by saying like, we're not going to force ourselves into this continuing what is not, should not go forward in the same path. Like we, we need to go forward in different ways. And we only got there from 
trying, you know, like we did try. Yeah. We, we did. We, we tried. We said, is this something we can fix? And we did the couples counseling and we did the books and we did everything else. And then we realized, like, actually, this is not something that we can fix. Um, but that doesn't mean we didn't we weren't successful at trying because it led us to see what what the decision needed to be. Yeah. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because you can translate that into so many different kind of contexts where it matters, maybe not quite as much as a marriage, but where it, where it matters because, because so often I think when we're working on our own, we, we second guess the decisions that are made around us. Like, you know, you pitch for a piece of work or you go for a job and you don't get it. And our assumption is so often that it was a failure on our part that we didn't do something right. But actually it's, it's not that there are so many external factors that, you know, so say I pitch for a piece of work and I'm too expensive or I pitch myself too low and they're like, hmm, I know she can't possibly be any good because she's, you know, way under the going rate or, or whatever. That's not about, that's not about me. That's just about the context in which their decision had to be made. And surely that kind of translates into these sort of conversations too. Like oh, I think about that Sometimes stuff oh. just doesn't fit match up yeah and and also i i don't know about you but when i do contract work like you know it can feel bad in the moment if you don't get to a deal of like oh they're they're not gonna pay me to write this piece or they're not gonna pay me to do this cool thing that i thought would be cool to do but what i try to remind myself of is like oh god when you get to a deal because you feel like you ought to say yes and then you're doing a job yeah. for like less than you think you should or like i mean that feeling is so crappy like that is what helps me to be like okay that's fine that this didn't work out this time around or that's fine that i said no to when they asked me to do this thing that was you know not enough money or not you know going to be too much um too much labor you know like i try to remind myself of like how great it feels when you don't just add needless headaches to your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was thinking that as you were as you were talking, this is as much about the no conversation that freelancers and solo workers find it so difficult to have, isn't it? Because uh, one of the things that I quite often say when I give workshops about this is that when you when you when you need to say no to something or you're thinking about saying no to something and you're really struggling with that possibility, you've got to think about your life in the round when you're saying yes or no to something because if you're saying no to something that you cannot fit into your life without massive consequences elsewhere, that's not a failure on your part. And it's not that you're not good at doing the work and doing the job. It's that the context isn't right. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't slot together. And it's almost that that's a hard conversation you need to have with yourself, right? Yeah. Like, I have to say no to some things because if I say yes to everything, I will collapse under the weight of it all. It, that isn't a failure. That's not uh, an inadequacy on my part. It's just it's just not feasible. And I think a lot of solo workers really struggle with that. Yeah. And I get it, you know, especially I mean, to me, that really links back to my my particular version of money issues, which is like to always assume I'm not safe and that there's scarcity and I need to always be hustling to make sure I'm earning more to have enough. But the consequence of that is like you know, you basically like when you keep saying yes to things that 
this is what I tell myself. And I'm sure, you know, so, so, so I have to tell myself this. When you keep saying yes to things that either don't pay you what you're worth or are more than you can take on, like you're filling up space that could be available for like whatever, you know, that that walk in a park because you have a free afternoon where you might come up with an incredible new idea. Like if you're just slamming all the time, you're not giving yourself those opportunities. And you're also not telling the people who are trying to hire you like, sorry, that's not enough money, you know? Mm. And like, if like the few times I have said, oh, I really don't want to do this. So I'm going to say like a crazy fee and then they pay you. It feels amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm a genius businesswoman, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Anyone who hasn't tried that trick should definitely do it. The next time you're offered a gig that you don't want to do, double your fee or triple your fee and then see what happens. Yeah. Can be quite transformative what you realize you could be charging. Yeah. Like, or if yeah. they say, oh man, that's way too expensive, say, okay, sorry, you can't, like, yeah. sorry, this didn't work out, and you move on. Yeah. Like, Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's so true. I have one more thought. The people in my life who are freelancers, I have found that they are the people who have can give me so much guidance on really like living in flow with life, which is around that idea of like, these are things I can control and these are things I can't. Because you, by the nature of your work, you're forced to sort of the life cycle of things are sped up, you know, yeah. Um, as opposed to me, who's worked for the same company for almost 12 years. Like I there's a lot I haven't had to confront about, you know, oh, this is how I feel when I feel uncertainty, you know. And and so I I I just wonder for you as a as a solo worker like, do you remember when you were first starting out, like, did you have a guide who helped you, who, like, had a conversation with you about how to manage the emotions that come with being an independent worker? No. No. <laughs> That's I the mean, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. I mean, to be, to, be, to be frank, the reason that I'm doing this now is to try and help other people have conversations and create a kind of a guide. Um, for people who might be at the beginning or in the middle, because I I got to a point about six years in where I was like, wow, I'm not coping (laughs) because, because of exactly that. I didn't, I didn't have conversations about how to roll with the emotions or, or the kind of the general, the flow of, of freelance life and often not having anything in the diary two weeks ahead and all of that stuff. So that's why I wanted to do this because I wanted, I wanted to create conversations, which would be useful. Yeah. That you needed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I I totally relate to that. That's why I wrote this book and why I, I make the podcast I do, because these are conversations that I needed. And um Yeah. And it is cool to see when they start people start actually having them. You know? It's like, oh, isn't life a little easier when you have a little company through this hard stuff? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's really fun talking thank with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I love I love your podcast so much. Oh. It was just, it's a real, yeah, it's a real honor. Thank you. Anna, thank you so much for being on the Solo Collective. Thank you for having me. As ever, I really loved that conversation. But I felt like there was so much that you could take from it that would apply both to our working lives and to our kind of more general lives outside work as well. I think that... One of the big lessons for me is that difficult conversations tend to make life better 
even if they don't have the outcome that we wanted. I think they have a kind of a lightning load effect. And I also thought that what Anna had to say about planning tricky conversations was really powerful. I think both the format that a conversation is going to begin in, like whether you do it on the phone or a video call or, or whatever suits you to, in particular, but also just thinking about how you want a conversation to go and what it is you need to say and whether you're treating it as a conversation within a family when in fact it's a conversation within work or whether you need to practice having the conversation with other neutral people before you kind of throw yourself into the the real version i think there was there was so much of that which i will adopt and take with me in my working life in the future thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the solo collective To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have anything you would like covered, let us know by leaving us a review or you can message us at The Solo Collective on Instagram. You have been listening to The Solo Collective with me, Rebecca Seal, a Chalk and Blade original produced by Laura Hyde with support from Fatuma Keira, original music by Dee Plume and engineering by Matt Nielsen. Chalk and Blade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.